Thank you, Matthew and Madison. Appreciate that. Needed that this morning, right? Kind of feel like we needed that lifting up of Christ, that lifting up of our spirits, and just a moment to say thank you, God. Thank you for everything that you've done. If you're here in the sanctuary with us, look around this morning. We're missing a bunch of people. It's not because they don't want to be here. It's because they can't be here. A number of people have a virus or are taking care of people with a virus and either have tested positive or waiting for tests to come back. Various stages, various levels of whatever is going on with it. So let's, I want, before we start this morning, I want to lift them up in prayer. Um, those who aren't here because they have it and those who are taking care of those who do. And let's do that first. Dear Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you for those that are present here, and we thank you for those who are watching online, and Lord, for those who are quarantining, and those who are taking care of those who are ill, and those who have it, who have had it, and all of the caregivers and workers that are still on the front lines fighting this, Lord, we just praise you for them, and we just ask that your loving, gracious, and um, awesome hands just be upon them and be around them this morning. Lord, just help them through this, um, this time. Lord, we ask that you would be with us this morning as we dive into your word. And Lord, we just pray that you will open our hearts and minds to have us see what you need us to see. And it's in your son's precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Let's spend some time in the Gospel of Mark this morning. One of the things I think we need to understand, um, so if you want to get your Bibles out, we will be in Mark chapter 8, um, and we will put it up on the screen when it's time to read that. But I need to set the stage for Mark a little bit. Now, some of you may know a little bit more about Mark, some of you may not. Mark, who if you remember the story in Acts 12, he was traveling with Paul, and they uh, traveled around, they went to his mother's house. And there were many that gathered there in Acts 12. Um, in Acts 13, Barnabas and John Mark were with Paul. And they, when they left Perga, John leaves and goes back to Jerusalem. Now, if you remember in Acts 15, when Barnabas and Paul are back together, Barnabas says, hey, I want Mark to go with us. And Paul says, no. And they had a sharp disagreement. Because I think he felt that Mark had abandoned them on their earlier trip. But Mark has spent a lot of his time back in Jerusalem. And he spent a lot of his time, and they believe that most of Mark's book, his gospel, came from listening to Peter preach. So as we think about that, we need to keep that in mind, that Peter, though Mark was not a direct witness to the gospel, to the the life of Christ, to the time that Christ lived, to the things that Christ did, he, was, he spent time with people who were. So he had a great insight into that because he, he got it directly from them. Now, they don't believe that his book was written until the 50 or 60, which places it in that next generation. Okay? So this is, he's writing to the next generation of Christians. And surprisingly, if you open the book of Mark and start reading, he just completely skips Jesus' birth. It's not there. 
And I think, you know, I don't know why for sure that it's not there, but I think probably if that second generation, they already had Matthew's gospel, and Matthew's gospel just lays it all out completely. We don't have um, Luke's gospel yet. Might have been writing it about the same time. And Luke's, you know, Luke's the doctor. He's the, he's the guy with OCD. <laughs> and he's writing down everything that he can hear and, and putting it together. So you know, I think Mark thought, you know, I don't need that in what I'm writing. I want, I want to get the points down. I want to talk about Christ. So we need to, I think we need to understand that about him. His message is about Jesus. And if you read through it, I mean, it's, it's almost that he distills everything down to the very essence of what it means to be with Christ. I mean, the, the, all the miracles are like three sentences, maybe two or three verses. They're just bang, bang, bang. And when he talks about going places, it's just like they went, they there, they're there. He doesn't talk about the journey. He's just putting the facts out there. But he always, is fo- always focuses on Christ, always focuses on Jesus. But he never, but when he focuses on Christ, he does it in the context of the crowds that are around Jesus, the, the general populace that are around Jesus, including his family. And these are the folks who, in the end of Christ's life, jeered at him. They yelled, crucify him. He healed them from illnesses. He drove demons out of this general population. And even his family said he was crazy. Mark includes all of those things in his gospel. He makes sure all those things are there. But yet, when we get into Mark 8, we're also going to see that these are also the people who show up for dinner. Right? This is the bunch that show up to get fed. The other group that Mark always makes sure that he includes are the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What a bunch, right? <laughs> what a bunch of turkeys sometimes. Because they call out Christ's actions. They get after him for picking grain on a Sunday to eat. And they pick on him because the, he, doesn't, he and his disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, I'm not saying, kids that are listening, you don't get to wash your hands before dinner. Please make sure you do that, especially today. But yet... You know, and I love that passage of Scripture. It's actually on the wall upstairs in there, and Christ says, it's not what goes into a body, but what comes out of it that makes us unclean. I won't tell you which room it is in the group upstairs, but you can figure that out. They call him a blasphemer. And they, this is the group that even has him arrested at the end. And then the other group that he always includes in his stories and he always makes sure that we try to understand who they are and what they're about is that bunch of 12, that inner circle, the, the 12 disciples, the ones who were called, who he specifically said, I want you and you and you to come with me. And, and they all came willingly. But they were doubters. They have all kinds of issues with some of the things that he says. And they're sometimes, they, call, um, they seem to be selfish. 
Some of them were a little power hungry. Remember James and John. They're fearful. They hide. They run at the at the at the at the arrest of Christ. And in the end, when he's on the cross, they abandon him. But yet, Mark ties all three of these groups together in his story, in the story that he's capturing about Jesus. One of the things we have to make sure we understand is just really what's going on with the Bible. We have to understand what it meant to the, what Mark was saying to the people of his time and to the group that he was writing this to, who were the Jews. Okay? We also need to look at the Bible, and as we read through the Bible, we need to say, okay, God, what, does that, what am I supposed to get out of that Scripture? Because it's not written to us. It's written for us, but we get to, we get to glean from it the things that God wants us to understand. And then third thing we have to do is figure out what does God want us to do with it. And that's pr- that may be the most important because we can get a whole lot of Bible knowledge. You ever, ever heard that comment made about I know a PhD who can't even tie his own, a PhD who can't tie his own shoes? Sometimes they're so smart they just don't know what to do. I think we can become that way as Christians. Gene and I were having a discussion before church this morning about a couple of people we know who kind of come across that way they're real willing to spout things at you but they're never willing to talk to you about Christ so we need to we need to make sure that as we go through these scriptures we see those things because that's really as we finished up last year his vision our mission one of the things about reading scripture sometimes it makes it difficult is those silly headers right because it's real easy to grab a header and read that one little passage right underneath it and say, okay, I got it, and go on. Well, sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. But I think sometimes if we put this, take the header out, just go through our Bible and black it out, and then read the Scripture as it was written, we have a whole lot better chance of understanding it. So we're going to start, and it's going to take a little bit to read through this, so hang on. Um, I'll try not to make too many mistakes as I read through this, but look in your book, in your Bible, watch up here on screen, and we're going to go through this scripture, and we're going to go start in uh, Mark 8, verse 1, and we're going to go all the way through verse 21. So it, it's a bit of scripture, and then I promise you don't have to memorize it. We're going to come back and break it down a little bit. So in chapter, in verse 1, in those days when again a great crowd had gathered, And they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, seven, and he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said, take these also, 
take, excuse me, he said that these should also be set before them, and they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went on to the district of Dalmanthua. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? So let's go back to the beginning of that story. And I think you have to read that as one story. You can't, if you try to break it up and read it as three separate stories, yeah, it's a great thing when he feeds 4,000 people. We've already fed 5,000, so what's 4,000? That's, that's a drop on the bucket. It's not, it doesn't mean anything. It's not as important as the 5,000, because we remember there's probably a whole lot more than 5,000 or 4,000 because they only counted the men. They didn't count the women and the children. In this passage, there's seven. There's seven loaves of bread. Now, remember, these are not, these are not um, wonder bread sandwich loaves that are pound and a half with 40 slices of bread in them. These are barley loaves, probably, and they were probably five, maybe six inches in diameter and about an inch and a half to two inches tall. That's what you start with, seven of those, and you're going to feed 4,000 people. Only Christ can pull that one off, right? Unless everybody just gets one little pinch of bread, and that's not going to work for lunch. I think as a Jew, if you're reading this passage of Scripture, your heart might be taken back to the stories of Elijah. Everybody remember the story of Elijah? And he goes to the widow's house and says, bake me some bread. And she says, I only have enough to bake my son and I some, and then we're going to die. And he says, bake me some first, and then bake some for your, you and your son. And they did that for how many years? Like three years. A long time. And they never ran out. Again, only God can pull that one off. What about the story of Elisha, where he goes to the house and says, the woman says, I have nothing left but just this little bit of oil. And Elisha says, gather up all the containers you can find. All the containers you can find. She went to every neighbor and got their containers, and she just kept pouring out of that little jar and filled all of the containers. And he said, now go sell that and live. Again, only God can pull this off. So I think those may be the story that the, that the 
Israelites, the Jews, are hearing out of this, that part of the passage of Scripture is God is a great provider, and he will provide all that we need in all the times that we need it, and he has a miraculous way of doing that for us. Now, these, these people have been traveling for, with Christ for three days. We don't know what they ate before that last day, but Jesus says, you know, it's time for me to go on. I need to let them go. But they've come a long way, so we need to feed them before we let them go home. So he has compassion. And we see what Christ has, compassion. What does that tell us about what we need to do? We need to have compassion, right? We need to be compassionate towards those who don't have everything they need. I'm not saying everything they want, but everything they need. And we need to be able to help them do that. We do that in lots of different ways, through our missions, through mission trips, through uh, just our general offering and giving, and we give back to the community as much as we can. So we need to keep that in our hearts, that we need to have compassion. And sometimes it's really hard to have compassion, isn't it? You you think, oh, that person got themselves into that boat. Let's let them row. No, sometimes we've got to jump in the boat with them and help them row. So we need to do that. So let's, let's now move on to the religious leaders. And that's the second part of our story this morning. We have the feeding of the 4,000 and Christ and his disciples sail across the lake and they land at this new place and immediately there's a bunch of religious leaders there trying to trap him again. Now, this group that is there, this is the Pharisees, according to Scripture. I tried to do some research on Pharisees, and there's not any real good, formal, full-blown, this is exactly how the Pharisees thought and did and what they said, but it kind of boils down to this. One of the parties or movements within Judaism of the late Second Temple period, i.e. 150 B.C. through A.D. 70, remember the temple is destroyed in A.D. 70, the Pharisees were noted most for their exact observance of the Jewish religion, their accurate exposition of the law, their handing down of extra-biblical customs and traditions. Ooh. Their moderate position with regard to the interplay of fate and free will and their belief in the coming resurrection and in angels. A lot of that comes from the, the writings of Josephus. And there are, you know, there's a few places that the Pharisees are mentioned in the Bible, and we can kind of glean some of that from those references to them. So it goes on to say, The ancient sources variously describe the Pharisees as a political party. that long enough pause? Okay. A philosophical society. Okay, everybody got a philosophical society put in their group, in their, or school put in their head? And scholarly class, or a sect, or voluntary association. They are part of three, the three leading movements of Judaism, Sadducees, Pharisees, and Essenes. So this is the group that's saying, okay, you can't do this, and you can't do this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. And they're saying, this is the way we're going to manage the tradition. They're going to put tradition before God. And they do that in just about everything they do. 
Okay? So we, we, have, we have to have that vision of who they are to understand what Christ is saying to them. Now, they have also, they know who Christ is. Now, they may not understand that he is the Son of God. They probably didn't want to know that he was the Son of God and on top of all of that. But they knew who he was. They have heard the stories. They had to have heard the stories of the healings and the demon um, ejections from people who have a, and, and they ha- he has to un- they have to understand that they has to have seen that but let's look, look at verses 11 and 12 again it says the Pharisees came and began to argue with him now I had to tell a funny story on Kira one time Kira, this is actually a Kira Jane story it'll be quick Kira come home called me on her way home from school Jane's in the car and all I'm getting from Kira is just this in tears, she's about fifth grade, maybe fourth grade. I'm going to hell. Why are you going to hell? Mom said I'm going to hell. I said, well, I really don't think your mother said you're going to hell. I can't quite envision that in my mind. I said, so explain to you, explain to me why mom said you're going to hell. She says, she said I would argue with Jesus himself, and if you argue with Jesus, then you're going to hell. I believe that. <laughs> I believe that because I love my daughter, but boy, she can argue. And at that age, she was a good arguer. And that's what these guys were doing. They were in Jesus' face. They were arguing with him over the things that he was doing and saying and all of that. I also think these guys must have been born in Missouri. Because everything they do is show me. And that's what the next, pat, the next thing says here. They want a sign. They want a sign from heaven. Oh, wait a minute. Why do we need another sign from heaven about who Jesus is? He just fed 4,000 people. He's been healing people. He's been driving out demons. He's been doing all these things. Why do we need another sign? And I love this. He says, Mark says of Jesus, he says, he sighed deeply in his spirit. Wow. Now I get in trouble for sighing on Facebook and and, um, uh, FaceTime calls and things like that when I'm on with my teams because sometimes you just have to go, (sighs) right? But this was a soul deep sigh. This is a spirit deep sigh. And he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign is going to be given. Not to this generation. Remember that political party that they were part of? That scholarly sect that they were part of? This learned group of peoples who couldn't tie their own shoes? Of course, they didn't tie their shoes. They wore sandals. But you get the point. What do we do with that? What do we do with that? I think we have to make sure that we never get to the point where we think we know more than Jesus himself. Right? Easy to get there sometimes. Like, I know exactly how Jesus is going to handle this situation. No, you don't. The Pharisees for that day, they get back in the boat and they take off. And depending on which which gospel you read, they were either on land again or they were still in the boat. It doesn't really matter, right? The fact is they're together, 
and they're close. And the disciples had forgotten to bring bread. They only had one loaf with them. They forgot their lunch. Now, I'm wondering if they're hoping that, you know, mom's going to show up in another boat and bring them their lunch. Because, I mean, that's how we were as kids, right? You, you forgot your lunch, you called home and said, Mom, I forgot my lunch. Usually what I got was, do you have any money? Well, yeah. Go buy your own lunch. <laughs> I'm not bringing it to you. If you can't remember to bring it, you're just going to have to buy whatever you can afford out of your own pocket. Okay. Jesus doesn't respond to that very first part. What he says is, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, leaven is yeast, okay? Just in case you hadn't ever thought about that. Leaven is yeast. I bake bread all the time. I look like I bake bread all the time. It takes one tablespoon of yeast to blow up two great big loaves of bread. It doesn't take a whole lot of yeast to get throughout the dough and make it rise. To change what it's doing. To change the way it's reacting. To change the way it's going to look. Now, yeast and bread is a good thing. Right? But he's not talking about good yeast. He's talking about yeast that is actually going to cause a problem. He's still focused on what the rulers were questioning him about. The unwillingness to believe on what they have heard. And he's warning the disciples that they need to figure this out. The the disciples are still only thinking with their stomachs because they keep arguing and keep discussing amongst themselves that we don't have any bread. Come on, guys, get, get get with it. They're caught up in the immediate. They're caught up in the immediate worry that they have on their hearts and not what Jesus can do in the moment or with everything that he needs to do. And Jesus, aware of their discussion, how would you like to have that friend Jesus who every time some thought went through your head, he goes, hey, I know what you're thinking. No, thank you. I, I don't need that. But yet he says, I know what you're thinking. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Can you not? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Are you dull? Are you worldly? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Come on, this was a couple of hours ago, maybe a day ago. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, that might have been a couple of months before, but how many baskets full of broken pieces did you get? One of the disciples goes up, 12! And then Jesus says, how many baskets full did we pick up day before yesterday? Seven. I think they begin to understand that what Jesus is trying to tell them. Quit worrying about it. That is inconsequential to what is going on. What I just told you about, to worry about and not get hung up on what this group of people who really don't understand who I am, what I mean to the world, what they're saying. Don't get so hung up on them that you forget what's important, which is me. 
which is Jesus Christ. Matthew, he, he fills things out a little bit further. He adds one more sentence to this, one more verse. He says, then they understood that he did not tell them to be aware of the, beware of the leaven of bread, okay, but the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were teaching things that were no longer completely correct. Listening to James going through stuff on Facebook this morning, there was an episode of the game show Family Feud. And the question was, name something that's hard to do with your eyes open. Name something that's hard to do with your eyes open. This young college kid, I mean, he's got the answer. He goes, he leans into the microphone and says, read. How many times have we read God's word with our eyes wide shut? We fail to read the word for what the word is supposed to be. It's a letter, it's writings to people in a specific time that we get to pull from, that we get to have that meaning given to us so that we can go do something with it. What is he saying to you about that leavening? We've got to quit worrying about the other stuff going on. Now, I think we can, if we have the ability to do something about it, we should definitely do something about it as long as we do it with Christ in our hearts and with Christ on our minds and with his kingdom in view. But we can't let it destroy our lives. It's, it's just, it's getting to the point where it's destroying our lives. We're afraid to do anything. And how can we use all of this to further our kingdom, further his kingdom with our work? One of the things I think we also have to do, and this puts maybe a too fine a point on it for the day, but it is when we read the Bible stories, they're not just stories. They're there for a purpose. They're there for a reason. And it's up to us, listening to the Holy Spirit, to read through the Scripture and understand what God is telling us. We have to do that. And sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes you have to read through a whole book and then go back and read passages and read, read back and forth, but you've got to put it all into context. Boy, I love an old Bible story, though. Those heroes love the story of Christ, but sometimes it's all too easy just to read it for the surface. And we've got to read it for what God wants us to get out of it and what he wants us to do. Our time today is going to close with our going to communion. I had another comedian comment that I remember from years ago, and it's really the title of my message for today. This comedian... She was talking about her particular group that she worships and, and um, identifies with within the Christian religion. And she says, we don't read the Bible. We read the bulletin so we know who died and what's for lunch. 
got it backwards. They've got it wrong. It's all too easy to get the wor- let the worries of the day and forget the reason for the table. We can come up to this table with half, half-heartedly. We can come up to this table no-heartedly. But we need to come to this table the way God wanted us to, the way Christ asked us to, not to f- have lunch for our bodies, but to feed our spirit. We feed our spirit at this table by taking in his body and representations of his body and blood so that we can be strengthened in his spirit because his spirit will guide us and direct us and he will make sure that we're not sitting around in the boat wondering what's gonna happen for, what we're going to have for lunch when the real thing we've got to worry about is the world ruining what we already have in Christ or trying to. And Satan would have no greater joy than letting what's going on in the world ruin our relationship with Christ. When we come to the table, it's about a relationship with Jesus and we feed our Holy Spirit. It's that time. So as I go to prayer, I'd like everyone just to keep all of those who need us to be Christians for them, who need our help and our support, through, our, through the spirit that God has given us, so that we can make sure that we go out to them with the right mindset and the right heart. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've spent together this morning looking at your word. And uh, Lord, I pray that uh, our, just that our hearts and our spirit are fed mightily by, your, by this communion time. Lord, we ask that you would be with us as we partake as we think about what we need to do. But most importantly, Lord, we ask that you would remind us of what you did, how you came for us, specifically, individually, and as a people, as well as your, the Jews and the Israelites and all those who were your favored nation. But we thank you also for grafting us in and making us part of your kingdom. Lord, we thank you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.